This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. This week marked National Caregiver Day and there were honours handed out in Toronto. We'll speak to one of the winners who has a remarkable story. And... Just in time for Easter, a new documentary offers a completely different theory about Jesus' last days. I'll talk to filmmaker Simcha Yakubovich. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Although there are no World War I vets remaining in this country, one of Canada's oldest veterans is among those who are representing our country at a ceremony in France commemorating the 100th anniversary of the battle at Vimy Ridge. 97-year-old Norman Cash was one of many Canadian Jews recruited to fight in World War II. He fought against the Nazis in France and later was part of the Canadian contingent that helped liberate Holland. The Battle of Vimy Ridge was the first time Canadian soldiers fought side by side and is largely seen as one of the most important events in Canadian history. Add another accolade to the storied career of Nobel laureate Toni Morrison. The 86-year-old author, who already has a Pulitzer Prize, received the American Academy of Arts and Sciences Emerson Thoreau Medal in a ceremony in Cambridge, Massachusetts, earlier this week. The prize was established in 1958 and is awarded to individuals to recognize a lifetime of literary achievements. Previous recipients include Robert Frost, T.S. Eliot, Norman Mailer, and Philip Roth. The city of North Bay has decided to keep the Dion Quintuplets' birth homes and its contents within the city. City Council was reacting to a public outcry over a proposal to move the home to a nearby community and hand over its contents to museums and universities. The 82-year-old sisters, who now live in Montreal, said their story put the city of North Bay in the global spotlight and serves as a reminder of how society and politicians sometimes bend the rules. The Ontario government took the quints from their parents and placed them in a special hospital where they spent the first nine years of their lives and where they served as a tourist attraction that poured roughly $500 million into provincial coffers. Heirs of Nazi-era Jewish art dealers are about to get their collection of medieval relics back thanks to an American court. The dealers claimed the so-called Guelph treasure was sold under duress to Germany in 1935, and just this week a federal judge agreed. The collection is said to be worth $250 million. It's the first time a court has required Germany to defend itself in the U.S. against charges of looted Nazi art. Experts say it could encourage other descendants of people who suffered during the Holocaust to pursue claims in court. 
Bob Newhart made the claim that he was my closest friend. I have never met Bob Newhart. He was one of the funniest comedians of the 20th century. Don Rickles passed away this week at the age of 90. His publicist confirmed he died at his home in Los Angeles from kidney failure. Rickles was a star on both television and the silver screen, but he was most at home in front of live audiences, where he berated his fans, calling them dummies or hockey pucks. He started his long career right after World War II ended, but it didn't take off until his first appearance on The Tonight Show in 1965. Don Rickles, dead at the age of 90. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Thank you. Thank you for all you do to support your loved ones, to support the community, uh, to demonstrate that Canada is a country of support, of compassion, of being there for each other, and this room is as good an example of that as uh, uh, anywhere else I've seen in this country, and it's an honor to be able to say thank you in person. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau acknowledging for the first time National Caregiver Day on April 4th. It's an opportunity for all of us to thank and celebrate those who put their lives on hold as they care for loved ones who can no longer care for themselves. In Toronto, VHA Home Health Care and City Representatives handed out awards to caregivers who have gone above and beyond for their families. Karen Gillespie was one of the winners, and she joins me now. Karen Gillespie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. You won a Caregiver's Award. You are the caregiver for your husband, who has early-onset Alzheimer's. Yes. Take me through your day. Okay, well, my day starts basically between 5 and 6 a.m. where I have some free time to myself um, before making my husband's breakfast and getting his medications out, unlocking the front door around 7.30, and a PSW uh, comes in shortly thereafter and finds my husband and I cuddled um, together in his hospital bed. And then the PSW uh, gives my husband a shower, um, gets him dressed for the day, and I help take him upstairs and have his breakfast all prepared. During this time, I used to be able to go out, but um, as he's having more and more trouble, um, I have to stay home to, or I feel I have to stay home anyway because I'm often called uh, for assistance. And then after they leave, that's it. So um, I get help at the end of the day I'm putting them back into bed so we spend our day together Karen your husband is only 64 you're only 57 did you ever imagine you'd be in this kind of a position at that age never absolutely never I was looking forward to um, you know that chapter of life when your kids are gone to university and you're a couple again and it was not to happen by the time, by October, when our second daughter went off to university. It's like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? And so, no, um, that's, and there's a lot of grieving that goes along with that, right? Loss of his license, loss of his job, loss of my job. You see all your friends doing what you had set aside and thought that you would be doing in planning, and and it's not to happen. But once I was able to get over all those emotions and the anger and why me and why us, I just had to settle down and 
and say, this is what I have to do. How long did it take you to get over the anger? I would say almost a year. Um, You're just so furious. It's like, when's it my time? Because I'd finished um, looking after my in-laws, Jack's dad and Jack's mom, and I was really, really looking forward to traveling and doing things as a couple. So I did seek help, grief counseling, trying to deal with this. We all probably take different lengths of time, but it seemed to take a long time. What about social isolation? Now, there is some social isolation. What happens is I've lost some friends. I've lost um, two girlfriends and um, some family members that don't understand. But then on the other hand, I have met these three volunteers that help us out. I've met many people in the community, and I've always tried to do a little bit of that caring for myself, which means different things at different times. You know, at the beginning, it meant actually being able to go out, but now it's more like living in a vice as as the world gets smaller and smaller and closed in. Do you feel that you have enough support, enough respite care? Oh, never. I don't know where I would be. My oldest daughter, um, who has been gone away for nine years to school and employment, found a job here almost two years ago. And so that is a great relief. I don't really know where I'd be without her. And my volunteers are amazing. I can just call and go out, or they could pick me up something if we need bread or milk or whatever. But, um, you know, with the amount of CCAC hours and, you know, the more demands on them, the more people trying to share the pot of money. Because I do understand that respite years ago used to be eight hours. It's three hours. So three hours of respite a week. And I would hardly call it respite because it means you're going to pay bills, you're going to do groceries. It's not um, time where you're actually doing something for you. What advice do you have to people who are embarking on this journey? Well, I think that whatever the disease is, why you're a caregiver, to just make sure that, uh, first of all, that you just accept it. Like, you just have to accept it, and you have to read all about it and know about it, and you have to seek help uh, from, like, the Alzheimer's Society or whatever society that the disease is. And I would say never promise your loved one that they will not go into long-term care. If it ever comes up, just say that you'll always try your best, because so many people are living with guilt because they said to their loved one, that they will keep them at home, that they will not go into long-term care, and then they can't do it. And your mood and your outlook really affects your loved one. So if you try to stay optimistic and don't talk about them in front of them, um, they can probably hear and understand more than you think they can. And to always be flexible and change as the disease changes. Let expectations go. Um, If you're frustrated, just imagine what it must be like for them. Okay, Karen, thank you so much, and congratulations. Okay, thank you. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, just in time for Easter, a brand new theory claims that the events of Holy Week actually took place over six months, and politics played a big part when we return. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. 
Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. This idea that Jesus was so dirt poor and he was illiterate and he could not even hardly, you know, make a living, I think that's very unlikely. That's a clip from the new documentary, Last Days of Jesus. As Christians around the world prepare to celebrate Easter, filmmaker Simcha Yakubovich is proposing a new theory about what happened to the historical Jesus. He claims that the events of Holy Week actually took place over a period of months and that Jesus was more than a poor itinerant preacher. I talked to Simcha about the film. For me, this is history. And it always made me wonder, because there were gaping holes in it that didn't make sense. For example, it didn't make sense to me that he would come in on Good Friday and the crowds would be cheering and saying, You're, you know, it's wonderful and Hosanna. And then within a couple of days, they're all screaming for his, for his blood, crucify him. What, what's that all about? The other thing is that if anybody knows anything about history... Jewish history, Jewish holidays, they know that the description in, in the Gospels of when Jesus comes into Jerusalem is describing tabernacles, Sukkot, tabernacles, not Passover. Everybody says it's Passover. But then as now, Jews, when they're celebrating tabernacles, wave palm fronts and sing hosannas. That doesn't have no Passover. It's like if you're talking pumpkins, you're talking Halloween. People who don't know what Halloween is may not realize it, and you could say, well, they had pumpkins and it's really, you know, Christmas. But if you know what it is, you know that it can't be. You know, the other thing that's glaring, it's a tense time. The Romans have occupied Judea, and he's going into the capital, and he's overturning the tables. Jesus is overturning the tables of the uh, currency exchangers. People are coming from all over the world to offer sacrifices in the temple of God in Jerusalem. And they're exchanging their, their different denominations so they can buy a sacrifice. Jesus creates a riot according to the Gospels. He shuts down the temple, the holiest place in Judaism, for a day. When Jesus overturns the tables, nobody arrests him. Like then as now, you know, if you walked into downtown Toronto and you start smashing up, you know, uh, shops... You'd get arrested. Nobody arrests Jesus when he does something, but they arrest him when he does nothing. You question the timing. You also question the theory or the story that Jesus was just a poor, itinerant preacher. So this idea of Jesus as an outsider, you know, that has no connections to the ruling authorities, again, didn't make sense to me if he's not arrested. And... What became clear to us is that Holy Week is really Holy Six Months. He doesn't, all this doesn't happen in a week. It happens over six months. He comes in, Jesus, to Jerusalem Tabernacles in the fall, and he is crucified at Passover in the spring. And that's what we do in the last days of Jesus in this film that's now airing on Vision. We try to fill in those six months with what actually happened, the politics behind the crucifixion. And he didn't, as you say, come in as some itinerant preacher. He came in as someone with strong political alliances. Can you tell us a bit about those? At the time that Jesus goes into Jerusalem, you know, during Holy Week, 
the man that's running the Roman Empire is a man we've never heard of, Sejanus. And this Sejanus, he basically goes down at the same time as Jesus goes down. So you have to ask, were they somehow connected? Is that why he wasn't arrested? Was Jesus under Sejanus' protection? Then you have to ask, what changed? What led the Romans, who did not arrest him when he created trouble in the temple, to suddenly arrest him and crucify him when he essentially was doing nothing? What happened during those six months? And for that, you've got to watch the movie. Now, is your new theory, is it revolutionary? Do you have some scholars on your side? Is it in any way threatening to people of faith? I think we're actually filling in blanks that people have wondered about. Why is he arrested? Why does the crowd turn against him? And we're making sense of the story. So I think that, you know, if you're not a Christian, it's just interesting historically. If you are, I don't think this says to you, don't believe. I think uh, it just says, listen, uh, let's fill in the blanks, the historical blanks. And, you know, uh, the reaction so far has been really wonderful. And the people in the film are some of the top uh, scholars in New Testament studies in the world. Okay. Thanks, Simcha. Thank you so much, Libby. The Last Days of Jesus airs Monday, April 10th at 9 p.m. on Vision TV HD. You can find it on Rogers Channel 60, Bell 606, and Bell 5, 1606. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Legendary songstress Doris Day turned 95 this week. We'll take a look at her career when we come back. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. Two Tony-winning veterans have squared off in war paint on Broadway. Christine Ebersole plays Elizabeth Arden. Patti Lapone plays Helena Rubinstein, two giants in the cosmetic industry. War paint runs through September at the Nederlander Theater. The Musée National Picasso in Paris is presenting the first exhibition dedicated to the years shared with his first wife. There are more than 350 paintings, drawings, and photographs. In The Hague, Slow Food, Still Lifes of the Golden Age has opened at the Mauritius Gallery. It features paintings of prepared food laid out on a table, all originating around 1600 in Antwerp and Harlem. And in New Orleans, for the first time, homegrown talent Aaron Neville headlines the French Quarter Festival. The 34th annual event features stages throughout the historic district, giving festival goers a chance to listen to more than 1,700 musicians. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Date Book. Legendary Zoomer actress and singer Doris Day turned 95 this week, which came as a surprise to the woman herself. She had always pegged her year of birth as 1924, which would have made her 93. But an Ohio official came out with her official birth certificate this week, saying her year of birth was actually 1922. 
Doris Day started out as a dancer but switched to singing and acting after injuring her leg in a car accident as a teenager. She was most popular in the 1950s and 60s, often appearing as the girl next door in films like Pillow Talk and Calamity Jane. Later, she turned to the small screen, starring in a sitcom called The Doris Day Show from 1968 to 1973. But she also had quite a recording career as well, releasing 20 albums through the years. Let's listen to one of her biggest hits right now, Sentimental Journey. Gonna take a sentimental journey. That's Doris Day with Sentimental Journey. She turned 95 earlier this week. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week when we talk about a new trend, Boomerang Seniors. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Dave Woodard, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.